Thank you, JP and Josh, for sharing those testimonies. It was really, like, when you hear those kind of testimonies and how God is moving in the nations and how God can move in impossible situations, I hope it, like, does something in you. I hope it doesn't just keep you there and, like, oh, that was, that was a great story. No, I hope it, like, really, like, stirs up something in you. And even the part about what Josh said, how he was so blessed. I feel like oftentimes when we go on mission trips, that's the case. Like, we go and expecting to bless the people there. But then God blesses us so much more, and you, f- you never regret going on a mission trip. I, at least I feel that way. So um, I hope it does something in you. So thank you again, Josh and JP, for sharing. Um, so let's go into the Word today. Um, I want to introduce myself first. So uh, my name is David Ha, and, whoa, okay. <laughs> thank you. I'm a pastor here in New Philly. Um, I was an interim pastor for three years, uh, starting in 2015 to 2018, and then this year I became a full-time staff member as a worship and media pastor. And at the time uh, when I became uh, the worship and media pastor, I had no idea that I would also be filling the role of a family pastor as well, but somehow that came onto my plate because uh, my wife and I were the only married couple on, on staff, so we automatically just... Uh, we're voluntold to become that role. Uh, but I feel like it's been a blessing to be to step into that role. There's so many new things that I've been learning, uh, not only about uh, pastoring people with families or people in couples or people that are getting married, um, but I feel like I've learned so much about myself, about our, our marriage as well. And I feel like even though my wife isn't a pastor, I feel like she's she's pretty much pastor. She shepherds people better than I do, I would say. Um, And she's definitely more relational. I'm more of the teaching type. Um, I tell people what to do, and then she's like, he didn't really mean that. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so she she is definitely made for this role, and I'm glad to be doing this with her. Um, So today, as a family pastor, um, I wanted to talk about families in the Bible. The last two times I preached on Um, praise and worship. So this time we'll look at a family. And I wanted to start off by showing you a picture. So this picture, if you can see it, um, it's actually a painting that if you walk in through these church doors, you'll see this picture. And what this picture is titled, it's The Return of the Prodigal Son by a famous Dutch artist named Rembrandt. And on the bottom side of this uh, bottom left, you see this very ragged, like haggard, um, bald, like kind of like a kaji looking uh, person. That is the prodigal son, right? He's returning to his father, and he's, his father is embracing him. And to the right of him, uh, of both of them, is the uh, disapproving older son. And this older son is like, what's going on? Like, he, he's crossing his arms in disapproval. And there are some other minor characters you can see, kind of see in the back. There's a lady in the back. Some people say that's the mom, but no one really knows for sure. Uh, there's another guy uh, next to the older son, and he looks kind of well off. So he doesn't look like a servant. He might be like an advisor to the estate or tax collector or one of the brother's friend, older brother's friends. And then there's a guy next to him. Um, he kind of looks creepy. He's, I don't know. He's... It's not very friendly looking, but he also might be a servant. So that is the picture, uh, the painting drawn by Rembrandt. And if I were to be honest, 
when I first read the prodigal son, this is not the image that I saw. Um, it's actually very different. Uh, in fact, if we were to analyze this for accuracy, this is a pretty inaccurate picture of what the prodigal son looks like. The older son was obviously not there when the younger son came back, right? The, uh, these other characters in the background, a few of them might have been there. Like one of the servants might have been there when the father was telling him, like, get the, get the sandals, get the robe. Um, and so tech, pretty much the only person that is uh, an accurate portrayal would probably be that creepy guy because he's probably the only one that was part of the action. And it was probably just the son, the father, and the creepy guy, right? Um, anyways, uh, this painting is actually lauded for its craftsmanship. It's actually considered one of the greatest art pieces of all time. And Rembrandt, he painted many uh of his paintings based off Christian themes. And somehow this painting uh, is one of, still one of his most famous pieces. And I believe it's due to a few things. First, many feel like it was a culmination of all his works because of the skill and the craftsmanship that was involved. Second, many feel that the story of the prodigal son had a profound effect on him and that this is backed by the fact that this is not his only drawing of the prodigal son. He had a few other pieces uh, that were related to or uh, about the prodigal son. And one of them was actually a painting of himself in a brothel. And he called it the prodigal son. So obviously it had a profound effect on him. And finally, this painting was made towards the end of Rembrandt's life. And it's kind of like his, like his last words, right? When you do something towards the end of your life, you wanted to uh, say something about yourself. So what about the message of this story, the prodigal son, had such a profound effect on Rembrandt? Let's look at this story together to find out. Let's go to Luke 15. If you have your Bibles, Luke 15, verse 1 to 2, and then 11 to 32. Luke is the third book of the New Testament. Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners, quote-unquote sinners, were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. If we skip to verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. 
He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray real quick. Father, thank you for this word. I pray, Lord, that at this time you would open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds, um, open our spirits, Lord, to really hear what your word is today. I pray, Lord, that the word, the revelation that you give to us would not uh, allow us to stay the same, but it would really challenge us, it would really convict us into a posture of knowing you more, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this parable that's found in the Gospel of Luke is probably one of the most, if not the most, well-known parables of Jesus. In your Bibles, the title would probably say the, the parable of the prodigal son, right? Or the parable of the lost son. And you may have heard this story preached before, or maybe you read Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God. Um, it's a great book. I recommend it. It's really short, but it's got great exposition. But whether this is your first time hearing this or the thousandth time hearing this, I pray that God will really open our ears to see what the real message of this is. And I want us to go through this story again. I just read this whole thing for you, and it's, it's quite long, but... Um, I'll give you not, I just read it in the NIV 84 version, but I'll give you uh, the David Ha translation right now. Um, I'll give you some context throughout to help you understand as well. So in verse 1 and verse 2, Jesus is with two different types of people. There's obviously two groups of people, right? There are the tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners. And then there are the Pharisees and teachers of the law. It's a pretty obvious divide, and Luke is making this obvious. There's like a cool group and a not cool group, right? And you can debate about who the cool group is. Um, nowadays, the bad people are usually cool, like, oh, yeah, I want to wear a leather jacket and smoke, whatever. But those are cool people, right? But back in the day, it wasn't like that. It was actually the people that were more educated, the people that were uh, more holy, considered holy, that were the cool people. And... The, actually, the uncool people, the sinners, they were looked down upon. And actually, they were outcasts of society. So the cool people here, 
the Pharisees are getting all jealous because Jesus is so popular. <laughs> he attracts these huge crowds, all these people surrounding him, and the teachers of the law are just getting jelly pretty much, right? They scoff at Jesus. They say, oh, this guy welcomes losers. He, he welcomes these sinners, right? The uncool people. And Jesus hears this. And in response to this scoffing, this muttering, he goes on to tell three different stories. We skipped over the first two, but the first one was the parable of the lost sheep. The second one was the parable of the lost coin. And the third one was the parable of the lost son. And they all share pretty much the same meaning, which is explained by the longest parable, the last one, which, one we're, which is what we're looking at today. So he begins this last parable by saying this. He says, there was a man who had two sons. This doesn't mean anything to us today, but back then this was what we call a storyteller's trope. And what that is, is like, for example, if I said, once upon a time, right? If I said that, that would take you somewhere, right? Or like, in a land far, far away, right? This, this is a storyteller's trope to get you to feel a certain way or to remind you of certain things. And when Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. He does this intentionally. Because if I was a Jewish person back in the day and I heard this, there was a man who had two sons, it would automatically remind me of other sons, other people in the Bible or in the Jewish Bible at this time that had two sons. So Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob, right? But... After he says this, he goes against their expectations. He says, the younger son goes to his father and demands the inheritance. In these other stories, in Cain and Abel, in Ishmael and Isaac, in Esau and Jacob, the younger son is usually the one that is favored by God. So God finds favor in the younger son, and the older son usually gets the shorter than the sick. But in this story, Jesus says, the younger son was actually foolish. So he breaks the expectation that they have. And he continues. The younger son goes to the father and asks him for his portion of the inheritance. Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, I do want to, I don't know if I have the authority to correct, but I want to lay this out there. Some people say that, oh, this means that he wanted his father to be dead. Because usually you have to be dead. The person who holds the estate has to be dead to get the inheritance. I did a little research, and there isn't enough evidence to say that. The only thing that we can say for sure is that he did want the money faster than when his father was dead. So you can't say, like, oh, he wanted his father dead just because he wanted the money early, right? The only thing we can say for sure is that he wanted the money early. So it's, it's more like a backhand slap to the face than it is a, a kick to the family jewels, right? So... So he goes to the father. He says, give me the money... And as we'll see, the father is full of surprises. And the surprising thing here is that Jesus says the father actually does what his son asks. Right? He, the, the, the younger son says, uh, give me the money. And the d dad goes and divides his property among them. And the word for property here in the Greek is the same word for life, bios. He divides his life among them. It's like when you have your life work, when you build towards something. That's pretty much what he's saying. This is what he dedicated his life towards, his land, his property. And now he's taking that and giving it to his son, right? 
And he was probably a rich guy, so this was not an easy process. It's not as easy as Jesus explained it. He divided his property among them. It probably took several months, actually, because if he was a rich man, which it looks like he has, he has servants, he has a lot of land, then it would have taken a long time, and it was a painstaking process. And Jesus continues. Shortly after this happens, the younger son takes all of his newly acquired wealth, heads for a far distant country, and squanders all of it on wild, reckless living. Living, And again, this all happens in one sentence of the story. He leaves his family, he moves to a distant foreign country, and then he goes bankrupt in the same sentence, right? That really escalated really quickly, right? So he reaches rock bottom, right? Well, not quite. If losing money wasn't enough, the next sentence says, there was a famine in the land. So not only does he go bankrupt, but the whole country goes bankrupt pretty much. Now, this, is, this has to be rock bottom, right? But wait, there's more. The younger son now broke, now facing a famine. He tries to find work. And the only work he can get is feeding pigs. And this is actually a job that was very culturally offensive to Jewish people because they, they saw pigs as unclean. If it wasn't uh, considered unclean, it, it was at least looked down upon. So... He's broke, he has no food, he's a social outcast, has to be rock bottom, right? Well, not quite. Again, there's more. The job he now has doesn't even give him enough wage to feed himself. He's so hungry that he wants to eat what the pigs are eating. But even then, they don't give him the the pods that the pigs are eating. So, let's recap. He's broke, he's hungry. He has a terrible job, and that job won't even give him enough money to feed himself. Now, finally, we have reached rock bottom. And as he hits this lowest point of his life, he comes to his senses. He finally, after all of these steps, comes to his senses and says, Wait, what am I doing? My father's servants have food. I'll, I'll just go back to him and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your servants. He devises his plan and sets out back home. Right? On his way back home, he's probably like rehearsing his speech, saying, Oh, I've, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. But again, the father, full of surprises, it says, But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. This is surprising because if I were a father in this situation, if I saw my son coming a long way off, he just disrespected me, right? I'd I'd run up to him, similar similar to what him, I'd run up to him and I'd smack him in the face, right? (laughs) But that's not what happens. It says he has compassion for him. And the other surprising thing is that he runs, Okay, running is not a big deal today. We see people run all the time. But back in the day, if you're a rich man, if you're a respectable man, you would never run in public. You would never run unless there was an emergency. And not only that, but, okay, fashion back in the day wasn't that great. They didn't have pants. So he was wearing like a dress, kind of like a tunic, right? He's wearing a tunic that's really long. So in order to run, he would have to hold his tunic and expose his legs, which was a big faux pas back in the day. So he's running, he's holding his dress or his tunic, and he's making a fool of himself pretty much. And then he embraces his son and kisses him. 
In all this craziness, the younger son is still able to get his rehearsed speech out. That's how much he probably said it. He's like, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But even before he can finish his speech, right, there was a, there was a part after that. It says, make me one of your servants. Even before he can get to that part, the, the father says, quick, get a, the best robe. Get sandals for his feet. Bring the ring. Bring, uh, this, this man is my son. My son has come back. Let's get the fattened calf. Let's throw a party. My son has returned. He was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they throw this huge party for him. This is a huge deal back then. And this is actually a, a beautiful picture of the gospel, right? People that are lost is found, like Amazing Grace is all about, the, the song Amazing Grace is all about that. And this is the story that we all know and love and the, the, the picture that we saw earlier, right? That's, that's, this is what it's all about, reconciliation between a lost son and his father. And if you compare this parable with the ones before, the lost sheep, the lost coin, they all follow this pattern. Someone loses something, they find it, and then they throw a huge party. Here's the thing about parties. Jesus loves parties. I'm going to prove it to you. Jesus was actually the life of the party. If you look at John 2, his first miracle is turning water into wine at a wedding feast. Okay, that's, okay, that's debatable, right? Let's skip to Revelation. Revelation 19 says, At the second coming of Jesus, there will be a huge wedding feast. If you, even if you look at this chapter... He mentions party three times. At the end of each story, there's a party. So Jesus is probably not averse to parties, right? He probably loves parties. And that's a great ending to the story, right? Now we can all wrap up and go home. No, that's not what happens. There's more to the story. At the beginning of this parable, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And it's easy to forget the older son's place in all of this drama. In the first act of the story, he doesn't even get mentioned a single time, which is a problem in and of itself. But here, when the younger son returns, he was working in the field, and as he comes close to the house, he hears the sound of the music and the dancing. Dancing, guys. There's a party, right? You guys better know how to dance. <laughs> um, the older son hears the sounds of joy and calls one of the servants and is like, what on earth is going on? The servant says, hey, your, your brother is back, and your father threw him a party with the Hanu, right? He's safe and sound. We, we killed the fattened calf. And instead of being joyful, instead of being like, oh, yeah, my brother's returned, what does he do? He throws his, a hissy fit. He's like a big party pooper, right? He refuses to go in. Now, the father, again, full of surprises, he's been disrespected and embarrassed by both sons now because the older son refused to go, and that was actually a big disrespect towards the father. He's backhand slapped by both his sons. This man goes out to plead with the older son to come into the party. But it's interesting what the older son says here. I'll read it to you verbatim, verse 29. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. All right. If you look at this, 
it seems like the older brother is upset over something really small, right? It's just, it's Hanu, right? It's just, it's just a fattened calf or maybe Kobe beef, okay, at the, at the very best. But we have to understand that first, meat was actually a delicacy back, back in the days. It was really expensive. It was only reserved for special occasions like weddings. Um, but it doesn't look like this is the only reason that the older brother is angry. We have to remember that the younger son already took his portion of the inheritance. Um, back in the days, the heir of the estate, the oldest son, was given twice as much as the other children. So in this case, there are two, two children. The younger son got one-third of the estate. The older son got two-thirds of the estate. So when the younger son took one-third of the estate, the older son was left with two-thirds, right? So the fattened calf that was killed and that was given to the younger son was actually a part of the two-thirds that belonged to the older son. And the father was actually giving away a portion of the older son's inheritance to the younger son, which makes the statement that the father says next even more important. He says, My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. This is not figurative speech. He's actually saying, literally, everything that I now have is yours. Right? But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I want us to notice two things about the older brother. First, the older brother is not a good older brother. How do we know this? As I mentioned before, we don't see him at all in the first act. We don't see him trying to persuade his brother to stay. Hey, what you're thinking about doing is not a good thing. Like, just stay here. Like, just, it's okay. You have all this stuff now. Just stay here and be with the family, right? He doesn't do that. We don't see the older brother going to the foreign country and trying to get his younger brother back. He doesn't go and tell him, hey, what are you doing? Like, like, get some sense into you. Like, he doesn't do that, right? We don't see this older brother even happy that his younger brother comes back. We actually see a lot of the same attitude that Cain had towards Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? Like, what does it matter where my brother is, right? Honestly, this is the world that we live in. If I were to share a story about my life, um, I am the middle child, so that means I have an older brother, and I am an older brother. Um, But growing up, uh, I know that I don't hold my parents... Like, I don't hold a grudge against them or anything, but, and they wanted uh, us to, um, they wanted the best for us, for sure. But my family was more of like a hands-off type of family. You do your thing, God will take care of you. I'm a PK, by the way, pastor's kid. So this is actually opposite of what a lot of pastors, pastors do. They try to control their kids, but my parents were like, we don't want to do that. So they did the exact opposite. They were like, you do your thing. And you deal with the consequences, right? But this means that our family wasn't very close. So when I got into trouble, my brother wasn't really there. Um, My parents weren't there either, but um, my brother wasn't there. He wasn't there to tell me, like, hey, what are you doing? Like, to rebuke me, to correct me. Um, And even as an older brother, I had the same failings. Even to this day, like, it's, it's, there's not trust enough for me to go to my sister and say, hey, what are you doing? Because that wasn't part of our family dynamic so i can actually look at this older brother and say wow 
There's me in there. But that's the world that we live in, right? Secondly, the older brother is actually not a good son either. In fact, he's the same as the younger son. Actually, he could be worse. Why is this? Because he actually wants the same thing that the younger son wants, but it's more, more covert. See, the younger son wanted the father's possessions, right? Give me, all, give me your things, dad. I'm going to leave. Give me your things. The older son actually wanted his father's possessions also, and not the father. But the difference was that the younger son was obvious. It was blatant. It was in the open. Dad, give me your stuff. I'm going to leave, right? The older son doesn't say anything. It's his sin is actually hidden. If you look at just appearances, it actually looks like the older brother is obedient to the father his whole life. In, in fact, he actually says as much, right? He says, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. But then look at his next sentence. Yet you never gave me even a young goat. His reaction to his brother returning is of anger over a cow, where he should be celebrating as the whole town was celebrating. The older brother's true heart towards his father comes out. All those years I've been serving you, right? That's what it says in the ESV or in the NIV. I just, I just read, slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. But the thing about what the father did he gave grace to his younger son, right? And there was always a price to pay for grace. There's no such thing as cheap grace. Someone always has to pay the price. In this story, it was the older brother, the older son, right? He wasn't willing to pay that price. And that's why he gets mad. You took my inheritance and gave it to him. Like, you never did, did this for me. But we see that if you read Tim Keller's book, Prodigal of God, it says that we have an older brother. We have an older brother that was willing to pay the price. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The last thing I wanted us to look at is the father, the stance of the father. And I believe that this is the reason that Jesus is actually telling us this parable. He's not actually saying, look at the, the older son, look at the younger son. He's saying, look at the father. Jesus actually ends this parable very abruptly. Very abruptly. He doesn't say whether the older son goes in or not, right? He ends on what the father says. And I believe he does this intentionally. It's because he's giving the audience, whoever's there, a choice. He's saying, the invitation is there. The Father has come out to meet you and is pleading with you to come in. But how will you respond? Whether you're a sinner, whether you're the younger son, or a Pharisee, the older son, God is still inviting you into a relationship with him. Will you take this invitation? Or will you keep choosing the things of the Father over the Father himself? And I believe that's actually the same invitation that he gives today. I know that there is a spectrum of people in this room. Not everyone in this room is the same. Uh, some of you might feel like the younger son. I, I feel far from God. I feel like I've done so much, so many wrong things 
um, recently that have pulled me away from God. You feel like you don't deserve God's love, but God is reminding you that even while you were still far off, he ran towards you. He embraced you. He kisses you. Some of you may feel like the older son. Honestly, this is mostly people that grew up in the church, like me. You might feel like the older son. You come to church every single week. You do the Lord's Prayer every single day. You give your tithe every single month. But examine your motives. What are you doing it for? What are, you, are you doing it so that God will be on your side and he will do what you want? Honestly, even when we come to church, we have to examine our motives. Like, why am I coming to church? Is it to hear a good story? Is it to feel good about myself? Is it to connect with people so that I feel like a part of a group? These are all good things. But if that's the only reason or the ultimate reason why we come, then you're missing the point. The invitation is not so that we can connect just with each other. But we need to connect here first, right? God's invitation is a pleading to come back into a joyous relationship with him. Now, one easy way to diagnose this, look at what the older son says again. I've been slaving away for you. You owe me. Do you feel like a slave right now? In all you're doing for the kingdom, do you feel like I'm toiling away? Or as Josh said earlier, it's exhausting, but it's awesome. I love it because I know that God is with me. I, I see God moving. Do you feel like a son who, who has a father by his side? Maybe you're not feeling like either son. Maybe you're like, oh, I don't really feel like either son. Maybe you're feeling like both sons. Oh, I feel like I'm a sinner, but I come to church, still come to church every week. Right? Whatever the case is, I just want to let you know that he is running out to meet with you. Or he's pleading with you to come back in. God is coming to meet you. He has an invitation for you. We just have to turn to him. We just have to repent and turn back towards him. And this is only made possible because of the older brother that laid down his life, that paid the price for us. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are a good father. And Jesus, you're a good older brother. We're reminded that we have a family. We have a place. We have an inheritance in your kingdom. And God, you just look at our posture. Are we facing away from you or are we turning towards you? God, you continue to invite us back over and over again. Lord, I pray that the posture of our hearts would be one that is always facing you, no matter how far we feel from you, no matter how, how righteous we feel, God. Let our hearts be filled with repentance. Let our hearts be filled with thankfulness of your grace and your mercy. Let us remind ourselves of the gospel every single day, and never lose its meaning, never, never lose 
its value or worth or the cost that it took for you to pay for our return. And God, as we look to your second coming, help us to be filled with hope, be filled with expectation, anticipation for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Help us to be a bride that is prepared. Help us to be a bride that is joyous, that we would remember the joy of salvation, God. We thank you once again. We pray this in Jesus' name.